Good afternoon, friends. So nice to be in the house with each of you this afternoon. If you see me walking a bit slowly, it's because I did my back. And uh, there's two, two nice things about sharing that with you. One, it sort of gives me an excuse to be a bit, maybe a bit more slow and that kind of thing. But two, it also means that I get to tell you that, yeah, I work out. And uh, <laughs> that's why it happened. New year, new me. I'm really excited about this afternoon because um, like if there's anything I believe about the Christian faith, it's what I'm talking about this afternoon. If there's anything that gets me out of bed, gets me excited, propels and puts me out of what I do, it's, it's actually what I'm talking about this afternoon. It's Vision Month, and I just want to say a warm welcome. Thanks for coming out this afternoon. Wouldn't have been easy. I was saying in our prayers before at the 3.20 meeting that, you know, there's going to be people who had like a big lunch this afternoon, and the most attractive thing for each of us could be just to like roll over and have a nice little kip. Uh, but I just want to thank you. It's awesome to be in the room with each of you. It's awesome to see Albert Street full again. And I'm excited for what God might inspire in each of us, uh, but also how he might commission each of us, uh, not just through the vision that New Life's got, but actually with what he might speak to each of us. Um, one of the places I've never been, which I've always wanted to go to, is Disney World. It's in Florida, one of the greatest attractions in the world. Uh, when he lived, Walt Disney came up with a vision for it. He wanted a place that... Um, and a lot of you are like, why is he talking about this? There's a point, I promise. But when he lived um, towards the, I think he died, 1966, he wanted a place where people could experience fun, where families could have a good time, sort of like this utopia here on earth, this fantasy, mythical world that people could enjoy with these boundaries that everyone enjoyed and had a great time. Uh, he came up with a vision for it himself, one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world, this resort, a theme park, all the rest of it, an amazing place. But the thing that I find interesting about Disney World is that Disney World was built after Walt Disney's death. The construction of Disney World was completed in 1971, but Disney died in 1966, towards the back end of the same year that he commissioned the build. And in passing, he actually never got to see his vision come to fruition. And on the day that the park was announced open, the speaker there, he said these words, he said, I wish Disney was here to see this. I wish Disney was here to see this. And Lillian, Walt's wife, was standing in the crowd, and she said to herself, he did see it. That's why it's here. This was his vision, and that's why it's here. He had a vision in the past for what could be in the future. He did see it. That's why it's here. And I want you to imagine this afternoon. Imagine with me for a second. Imagine New Life Brisbane in 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, down into the future. Imagine what this place could be. What comes to mind? What comes into your imagination? Who are we? Where are we? And what are we? And here's the point of Vision Month. The point of Vision Month is to take for granted the fact that the vision we give ourselves to today builds the church we experience tomorrow. And so we want to ask the question, who are we becoming? Where's this all going? Why are we even here? And what's the vision that we've got for ourselves as a people? Here's the question I want to ask. What do you see when you see New Life Brisbane? Now, I get to answer that question in part as a pastor of this church, but it's actually all of our jobs as Christians who call this church home to answer that question for ourselves, both to give ourselves to the mission that's articulated from leadership, but at the same time, think about how we can inflect that vision with our own lives and the own things that God puts on each of our 
hearts? What do you see when you see New Life Brisbane? And as a church, we want to answer that question with clarity, with conviction, with a bit more energy than, you know, with me with a sore back is kind of allowed to embody right now. But we want to answer that question. But when we do answer that question, there's two, two sort of things I want to guard us from, just as a church family. The first thing is we need to avoid any sense of reducing God's mission to just what we do as New Life Brisbane. We are one church in this city. And we step forward with clarity and conviction around what God's got for us to do, but there's a whole host of other churches here that we want to celebrate. And it's actually our unity and our championship of others in our city that actually will see to the mission of God going forward. We do not reduce the mission of God to what is happening here. In other words, we're casting vision today, but we do so with no sort of you know, inflated sense of ego, no sense of triumphalism that we're the one people that if God didn't have us in this city, his mission wouldn't go forward. We celebrate what others are doing. We do not reduce the mission of God to that which we do alone. But second, we need to avoid removing ourselves from the mission of God. What do I mean? There's an Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, brilliant guy, and he had this beautiful phrase in a book that I was reading recently. He said this, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Let me read that again. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. The mission of God. What's he saying? He's saying that a church, if it's a real church, it, it can't define itself apart from God's mission. A faithful vision is born out of a deep-seated appreciation of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. See, we come to Vision Sunday, not just as one church here at New Life Brisbane, but churches across the Western world, because that's how we do institutional church, right? We have a Vision Sunday every month, every year, sorry. And we come to this Sunday and we ask, what's God got for us? That's not a big enough question. What's Jesus doing in the world? That's the question from which we get our bearings, into which we articulate that which God has given us as a church. It's not so much that the church has a mission in the world. It's that God's got a mission and his church is part of it. And so what is that mission? At the end of his life, Matthew 28, Jesus, he gave these famous words. He turned to his disciples, verse 18, just been resurrected from the dead, about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to rule the earth as the acknowledged king that the whole world's been waiting for. And he said these words to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. It's been called the Great Commission. Why? Because it is the very mission of Jesus that he embodied, which he passed on to his people, commissioned them on the mission that he himself participated in. What is God doing in the world, therefore? God... He's making disciples. He's making disciples as an in-time embodiment of what he will do at the end of time, reconcile all things, make everything new, make the world beautiful as it always intended to be. And that's why our vision as a church is just a nice little paraphrase of Matthew 28. You've heard it before. You might be able to say it with me. Why don't we do that? On the count of three, one, two, three, more people, more like Jesus. 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 That's the vision for why I applied for this role. That vision is the very thing that I thought I could give myself to that. 
More people, more like Jesus is the thing that gets me out of bed every day. Not just for those that I want to witness to, but for my very self. What parts of me am I not surrendering to the love and the care and the instruction of God? More of me, more like Jesus. More people, more like Jesus is the reason that we do everything we do as a church. All the bumping in and out on a Sunday afternoon in the heat. All the small groups run not at a facility that we have as an office in the city because we don't have that. All the small groups we run at people's homes. All the midweek programs that we've got as a church like Pathways and Prayer and all these myriad of activities. Make no mistake. These are all an exercise in seeing more people more like Jesus. One of the things, I'm just going to lean over here. Oh, that's good for the lower back. (laughs) One of the things we've sort of rested with as a church, I won't be here all afternoon, I promise. (laughs) I nearly started this sermon just by saying, I think we're going to go over today. There's probably a few factors contributing to that, but one of the things we've wrestled wrestled with as a church leadership is that, you know, more people, more like Jesus, it's, it's nice. You can remember it, it's fancy, it sort of rolls off the tongue. It's a bit of a quip. But how do we actually, you know, what is that, what do we do? And it's characteristic at this time of the year for a church to get up and say, oh, this is what we're doing this year, and they'll announce a church plant in some, like, backwater country that you've never heard of. I think we did that a few years ago. I think Stu Cameron, as the story goes, he got up one week on Vision Sunday and said, we're planting 30 churches or something by 2030. And then the week after, he stepped down from his role and moved to Sydney uh, to lead a superintendent of Wesley Mission. And everyone's like, are we still doing doing that? And we just wanted to, as a church, provide clarity around how we think we can see more people more like Jesus. Very tangible, very concrete, but, but no less significant. And we've got four things that we've wrestled with as a church. You ready? These headings, they won't just make up the titles of the sermons for the next three weeks, this fourth week included. These will make up the strategic priorities that we think God's given us as a church through which to outwork the mission that he's given us. Here they are. New life. We see a church that prioritizes four things. Gathering the lost, gluing in community, growing in discipleship, and going on mission. Gathering the lost, gluing in community, growing in discipleship, and going on mission. In other words, four beautiful, sweet words. Gather, glue, grow, go. Evangelism, community, formation, and mission. We want to gather the lost. We want to glue in community. We want to grow as disciples. And we want to go on mission. So here's the question. What do you see when you see new life? What comes to mind when you look at all the activity? all the paraphernalia, all the institution of it, what do you see? And here's what we want to see. We want to see a church that is ravenously committed to gathering the lost. We want to see a church that is committed to gluing in community, not just sort of sharing the highlights of the week, but actually getting vulnerable with one another. Sharing life is what the New Testament would call family with one another. We want to be people who grow in our formation as disciples of Jesus. We want to actually participate in the part that God invites us to play in apprenticing ourselves under Jesus for the glory of God and the good of the world. And we want to go on mission because we as a church are not people who have a mission. We're part of God's mission in the world. And today, I just want to unpack the first priority with the 70 minutes that I've got left. I want to unpack what it means for us to gather the lost. 
by doing two things. One, asking why gathering the lost is our priority, and two, how gathering the lost is a priority. So first, why it's a priority. To be honest, there's like no easy way around this. We as a church are committed to gathering the lost because God is committed to gathering the lost. That's the very heart of God. It comes from the very heart of God. In the Christian story, we worship a God who isn't disinterested in the lost, but someone who loves the lost, gravitates towards the lost. We serve a God who serves the lost. We love a God who loves and longs for the lost. In other words, here's the key point. You can't claim to follow God without aiming to loving the lost. You just can't do it. They're oxymorons. They, they go together. You can't claim to follow Jesus without aiming to loving the lost. In Mark 2, Jesus said it like this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. In Luke 19.1, Jesus has just interacted with a tax collector named Zacchaeus and this person who everyone thought was the last and the least and the lost, and he's at the bottom of everyone's expectation list as to who could make it in the kingdom of God. And everyone's wondering, Jesus, why did you hang out with Zacchaeus, the tax collector? He's the reason by which we're oppressed by Rome even further. He's collecting money on behalf of Rome from, the, from God's people. Why are you hanging out with him? And Jesus just says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. But perhaps the most famous articulation of Jesus' and God's heart for the lost is this, Luke 15, in the passage that we read earlier. At the start of this entire chapter, Jesus has just been confronted by the Jewish religious elite. They ask him this question, Jesus, why you plus sinners? Why do you dine with these guys? Why do you share a table with these guys? And Jesus, politicians do this. I don't think Jesus is being a politician, but he doesn't answer their question straight. Let's just call that for what it is. He doesn't answer their question straight. Why do you hang out with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus? And he just, he tells them a story. He tells them three stories, actually. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And it's, it's by telling this story, and here's the point for you to consider right now. It's by telling this story that Jesus paints a picture for his reader, for his listener, to start to ask the question, well, who am I in the story? You've got this play before you and the responsibility of each of us, not just in this room, but throughout history, is to answer this question, who am I in this story? And the story of the lost son reveals how Jesus thinks of sinners and how God responds to them. That's what we learn from this story. So come with me, verse 11 to 12, it says this, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them and the son went off. Now cast your mind back with me just for a second. Jump into first century sort of Jewish worldview for a moment, as easy as I make that out to be. Think about what this means. Here the son is asking for his father's inheritance, and here's the question. Many of us here have parents. Most of us here have parents. Many of us will get an inheritance at some point in our lives. But the question is, when do you get your inheritance from your parents? Anyone, just let's throw this out. When they die. Yeah, when they die. And so Jesus tells this story of this son, and he's like, hey, father, give me my share of the estate. What's he really saying to his father? He's saying, I I'd rather wish you dead. Super offensive, <laughs> just to like, call it for what it is. Super offensive. But what's the father do? 
Yeah, sure, generously. Here, you take it. But here's what Jesus is describing. he's, He's picturing a son who's asking for this father to die. And here's what this means. It's like he's saying to his father, I want your things, but I don't want you. Now, every Christmas we exchange gifts. Could you imagine if we went to the Christmas tree and our parents are there waiting for us, they're ready to sort of enjoy our reception of the gifts that they've made for us, and we just say, hey, could you just leave the room for, you know, 30 years and I'll just enjoy what you've, what you've given me? It'd be highly offensive, and it wouldn't make sense of what the gift is. But here's the point of Jesus telling the story. This is what we all do as humans. This is the human condition. As, as blatant as I can put it, this is what it means to be human. To say to our Father in heaven, I want your things without you. To live our lives without recourse or reference to the one who made us for himself. This is what humanity does. We all say to God, I want the goods of your world without the God of this world. How? Well, think about it. All of us live our lives with such a great plethora of things to be thankful for, but few of us sit deep enough to think long enough about who we're grateful to. You know, one of the key practices that's passed around in pop psychology today is like, you know, you want to you be gracious, uh, you want to have gratitude. And, you know, there's like these gratitude journals you can get from Kiki K, and they're stunning. But the question that's begged is actually, who are we inviting people to be thankful to? And the Christian story would actually just say that God has made this world, and He loves you, and He's made you for Himself. And every good and perfect gift, as James, the brother of Jesus, would say, comes down from the Father. But we're so good at just waking up and without reference to one who made us, just enjoying the gifts that he's made for us available without reference to him. We live our lives in autonomy from God. We turn away, we turn in, and we become what the Bible calls lost. Now, just pause here. Lost. Quite an audacious term. Some people would think of that as a sort of a triggering word for them. What does this preacher mean when he uses the word lost? Why does he feel so comfortable getting up for the first physical gathering back of their church and start using this word lost? Not to describe the people that we'd all say, oh yeah, they need a bit of moral help, but to describe everyone in the room, to describe himself. Why Why is he comfortable doing this? Are you saying that we're evil, Alex? Are you saying that we're dumb? What does that word even mean? I, um, I actually got lost recently, and um, my, my parents-in-law, they live uh, in a place called Burbank, which, if you don't know of Burbank, it's an amazing place. It's like this bush enclave, yeah, Maddie knows. Uh, it's like this little bush enclave, 20 minutes south of Brisbane, no one knows about it. But there's all these properties with acreage there, and there's a koala sanctuary, and like, it's amazing. And so, you know, I had a week off and we went and spent time out there with Kath's family because it's basically Eden. And uh, I was like, I need to get some exercise in, second plug for the fact that I'm a fit pastor. And I, was, I jumped on my mother-in-law's um, downhill mountain bike and I was riding through Daisy Hill Conservation Forest. This place, it's, I think it's 5,000 hectares. I wrote this down, 500 square kilometres. That's actually a much more accurate thing to say. 500 square kilometres. There's mountain bike trails, there's walking trails, there's like service roads for what I imagine would be like fire trucks coming through every now and again. There's a koala sanctuary. Um, I'd only been there a few times, but this time I went by myself. And I'm riding along, 
and I hit a trail, I reached the bottom, and I come to this intersection. And I was like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> I didn't know where to go. I had no idea. And luckily, when I was riding along, there's this, like, this, I think it's called the five ways or the multiple ways. It's like this section in the, the forest where there's a map and you can kind of pick a bunch of trails to roll down. And it, uh, the tip on the map from the bush ranger, I need to know his name, I need to thank him. He said, hot tip, take a photo of this map. I was like, thank you very much, I did. And so I find myself at this intersection, no, nowhere, like no knowledge of where to go. I'm like, oh, I remember, I took a photo of the map. That'll help me. So I whip out the map, spent a good five minutes, probably ten minutes, trying to figure out where to go, made my way home. But here's the feeling I had when I was lost. I felt anxious. I felt disorientated. And I remember thinking, how did I end up here? This is all such a blur. And that's a bit of what the Bible means when it talks about being lost. When the Bible calls humanity lost, it doesn't mean that you're dumb. It doesn't mean that you're evil or the epitome of everything that's bad in the world. It's actually quite a dignifying statement. Sure, it's got a critique involved, but there's a compliment there too. It means that humanity was made for a home and all humans have left their home. We find ourselves lost, cast out, exiled from the home that we were all made for. That sense of lostness that we feel, it's not something accidental to human being, it's something essential. Why? Because all of us have this sort of homing beacon for the Father God who made us for himself. We're all lost, we've all been made for a home and we've all run away from home, each and every single one of us. Sure, it shows up in different ways, but it's all the same thing. Say, for example, some of you. Some of you would have hit rock bottom in life. You might be addicted to substances. You might not be in the relationship that you want to be. You might find yourself with all these mental anxieties and depression. You, you feel like you've hit rock bottom in life. You feel overwhelmed. What's that? That's a symptom of your lostness. It's a symptom of the fact that you're exiled from the home that you were made for. But maybe you're not, you're not sort of hitting rock bottom in life. Maybe you're like crushing it. You know, you in the corporate ladder, you, you're like good friends with the top level. Maybe you've in, you're in the relationship that you've always longed to be in. Maybe, you know, you've just stepped into a meaningful role and you're like, actually, this job could, it could really be the one that makes me feel good about myself. You feel like you're crushing it in life. But permeating in this background hum is this sense that, man, is this all there is? Like, is this really all that it's cracked up to be? The thing about being lost is it, ex it exhibits itself not just in our hitting rock bottom in life, which actually all of us will at some point. It exhibits itself when there's this background hum. Even while life's amazing, this question that remains, that nags at us, that niggles at us, and the question is this, is this all there really is? Which is why you can be lost and incredibly successful in life, at least according to sort of Western, liberal, democratic marketplace standards. You can be lost in life and be crushing it. Jim Carrey, a comedian uh, who I actually like, loved watching growing up, um, we can vote on your favorite movie later, but he, he said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Being lost. It doesn't have to be this big, bad, ugly thing. It can just be waking up every day with this sense that, wow, I was made for a home, and I'm not in the home I was made for. Augustine, a fourth-century African theologian, he said it beautifully. He said, God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Let's... let's take this up with like a more joyous occasion for the next five minutes. 
What does God do for lost people? What's God's heart response? How does he react? Because at this point, the Jewish elite who asked Jesus the question, they're like egging Jesus on. They're like, Jesus, we get this picture of human sin. We know that people have rebelled from God and they find themselves not just rejecting him and offending him and hurting him, but actually they find themselves in a worse place than they would have been if they ever did. But why, Jesus, why do you, a religious teacher, spend time with those who are sinful? Why do you eat with sinners? Now, for us in the 21st century, this question might not feel like a really big deal, but it was huge for them. See, in first century Jewish culture, who you shared a table with showed who you identified with. And who you identified with showed who you could be yourself. And so when the Jewish elite asked Jesus this question, they're doing what they've done throughout the whole of the Gospels, which is they're saying, Jesus, you're at risk of having your reputation tarnished. Because what's their priority? Their priority is this. They think that God's righteousness and God's holiness is that which keeps God's self separate from those who are sinful. But Jesus... He remembers something that they've so easily forgotten. Sure as ever, come back to the story, the son comes to his senses and he's like, look, I could probably have a better work-life balance if I just go hire myself as a slave to my father. So he starts making his way home. On the way, he prepares his apology. He practices his confession. He gets ready to prove to his offended father that he is sorry and that it won't happen again. And let me just read the actual text just to give you a window into God's heart for those who experience this lostness. Verses 20 to 24 says this, But while Jesus was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And here's the thing. I don't know what brought you to church today. Maybe you're trying something new for 2022. Maybe a friend brought you along and you're like, man, this language of lostness, it's really just making me uncomfortable in my seat. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm prepared to go. Maybe, maybe you're genuinely curious about what God is like. But here's what probably is the case. It's probably the case that if you don't know God, then you're wondering, look, if God is real, how would God respond to me? What would God's heart be towards me? Will he accept me? And even deeper than that, like, would God ever like me? See, people have this image of Christianity, like that of the son in the story. A lot of people think that before God would accept us, we need to radically transform our life. We need to try and merit our way back. It's like, imagine if the father in the story was sitting there brooding in judgment, just waiting to show that his son, you know, he's on the front steps brooding in judgment, waiting to show his son that he's like truly disappointed in him. Or imagine if the story had the father, you know, the father doesn't say this to the son. He doesn't say, okay, let's like, let's start this relationship back off like on a trial basis we'll see if you're really serious. Um, So work with me for a few years and then I'll reinstate you from slave to son. It doesn't say that. And the father doesn't sit there on the front step saying, hey, look, just just prove it, you know? Just prove it that you really want to come back into a relationship with me. No, it literally says this, that while the son was still a long way off, the father ran to him, embraced him, and clothed him. 
And here's the ultimate question. And the answer to this question, just to give you the heads up, the answer to this question is the critique that people have of who God really is. Because again, people think that God would smite them if, he, if they truly knew. People think that God would reject them rather than accept them if, if he truly knew. But here's, here's why God does what he does in this story as the father. He's a God of love. He's a ravenous pursuing God. He's a God that reaches out, not just in this story, but in his very person, in the person of Jesus, to chase after those that have rejected him, offended him, find themselves least uh, close to him. This is the heart of who God is. I said I wouldn't share this story, but I kind of have to. When I was younger, um, I was pretty dramatic as a teenager, um, and I found myself returning from church one night, I was like 15, and I, I got home and had a sort of hard conversation with my dad, and, and the result of this conversation was that I like ran away, and I didn't run far, I just ran down to this like gazebo thing that overlooked the water at Woody Point where I grew up. And I sat there, and I remember just thinking, man, I just want to be independent from my parents, you know, they're weighing me down. But the longer I sat there, the more I was like, ah, oh, flip, I miss them, you know? <laughs> and I just started to feel upset about being separated from my parents. And it had been like 15 minutes at that point. <laughs> sat there for another two hours because I needed to make it feel like my dramatic leave had like warrants. So like 15 minutes going home wouldn't make sense, but two hours, it's like, ooh, he's serious. <laughs> and just before I got up to leave, I heard these footsteps of this man running. And I turned around and I was like, oh, I think I know that man. This man was running around, he had a photo, and he was asking strangers, hey, have you seen this boy? And I went up to this man, it was my dad. And, like, I've never looked at my dad, you know, the same since then. It was a Sunday night, it was like a school night, you know, how embarrassing for my dad to like leave his comfortable home on a Sunday night, at 8 p.m., to run out after his rebellious, dramatic son who's actually got nothing to complain about and ask complete strangers, making himself a fool, ruining his dignity before those who don't know him, just saying, hey, this is, have you seen my boy? We walked home together and he said, what's up, you know? And we had a chat. But I've never seen my dad differently. No, the same since that moment. And here's what I'd say to each of us. That is a microcosmic example of the heart of God for everyone in this room. Maybe you left church ages ago. Maybe you've never known God. But here's the point of the story. Each of us wake up longing to be autonomous from him who made us for himself. John Mumford, you know, he'd say it like this, you, yes, you were made to meet your maker. Each of us were, but we live our lives autonomous from him. And so what's God do? Well, he doesn't smite us. He doesn't sit there in judgment. He doesn't wait for us to return so he, he, we feel the disappointment that we know he should feel. What's he do? He runs at great cost to himself in a way that ruins his dignity, in a way that he spends of himself. He runs to each and every single one of us. So here's the question. Why do we prioritize gathering the lost as a church? And here's our answer. It's who God is. Every single person in this room is a lost person who's been found by Jesus. That's why if you're a Christian, you would have grown fond of singing that beautiful song from Isaac Newton, who said it like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind, but now I see. Everyone in this room is a Christian, not because they merited their way back to God, performed their way back to God, radically transformed their lives enough to get back into the arms of God. Everyone in this room is a Christian if you call yourself a Christian because of the love and the grace and the mercy and the embrace of Jesus. That's the heart of God. And as a church, we want it to be our heart. We want it to be our priority. We want it to be our heartbeat, the thing that gets us up in the morning and takes us out into the world. We want to be a people who will gather the lost because it's God's priority. And so my question to us New Life this afternoon is this. Will you be a people that gathers the lost? Will you be a people that gathers the lost, gives yourself to the lost, thinks of people that are different to you, not as those to be avoided, but those to be spent your life for? Not as those to be separate from, but those to seek out as the very embodiment of the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. Will we gather the lost? And the key question is how? Three really brief things, and then I'll finish up. How are we going to do this, Pastor Alex? First, we want to be a church that's passionate about evangelism. Come on, that's good. We want to be a church that's passionate about evangelism. One of the things that's absolutely blown my mind since starting at New Life Brisbane has been, actually, there are people in this church who love evangelism. Why? There's this story in the Gospels told of a person who finds a pearl. And they think of this pearl as valuable, as significant. And so they hide the pearl to keep it safe because it's one of the most valuable things in the world. I actually probably butchered that story. It's called the Pearl of Great Price. And Christians carry around what Paul in the New Testament would call treasures in glass, jars of clay. We've got a message, a message of hope, a message of life, a message of love. And the impetus as a church is not that there be like a few professional Christians that get set aside to do the work of evangelism, which in short, just by the way, is just telling people about Jesus. That's like the best definition for it. It's not for the professional few elite. It's actually for all of us. The, the, you know, you might say, Alex, you're set apart. You're financially, you know, freed up to do evangelism. And I would just say, actually, no. The same Spirit of God that lives in me is the same Spirit of God that calls and equips each of us. We're all called to be evangelists. And you might say, I just don't have the gift of the gab. That doesn't matter. God preaches through anything. He delights in it. It's actually the power of God that's made perfect in our weakness. And if you can't speak well, that's fine. It's a beautiful witness. I think of John the Baptist in the Gospels, and he said, God's got to increase, I must decrease, and he just pointed the way to Jesus. And likewise, we need to be a people that are passionate about evangelism, because here's the thing, in the Western church, we've got an evangelism problem. Uh, Barna, they did a sort of study recently, it's over in the States, but it maps on pretty well to the kind of conversations I hear coming out of, you know, sentiment and conversations at New Life, and, you know, in the broader church, but they they studied and they found two things to be true, that millennials and Gen Z, not so much for older generations, but millennials and Gen Z uh, sort of unanimously agreed that it's important for people to meet Jesus, like Christians, that is. It's important for people to meet Jesus. But these same people also responded on the survey saying, they were asked the question, um, is it okay to share one's beliefs with someone who disagrees with you? And the same demographic of people said no. A lot, a lot fewer said yes than... And so here's the disconnect. We agree on one hand that actually the life that we've been given in Jesus, we need to share it. It's a pearl of great price. Everyone needs to come and meet the King Jesus. But there's this disconnect and we're like, but we can't share our beliefs with people that disagree with us. 
And I would just point out that disconnect to each of us and challenge us with this. Well, not challenge us, I'll just repent for a second. You know, I... In my previous role, I was freed up full-time to do the work of the evangelist, to tell people about Jesus. And I saw people come to faith. It was beautiful. And there was this one testimony from this you know, kid at um, university in, in Surrey. And I sat down with him, and after a long day of conversation, he turned to me and he said, I said, what's holding you back from meeting Jesus? He said, actually, nothing. And so we prayed together. I got him a Bible and a journal. And then he said these words. He said, man, meeting Jesus feels like acceptance. And I was like... You nailed it, bro. You flippin' nailed it. But as I've been here six months, I don't think I've shared the gospel with anyone. I've shared my life with people. Shared the broad story of God with people. But just to own that and repent. Like, I want to be someone with stories to tell, you know? I don't want to waste my life. I don't want any of us to waste our lives. There's a whole kingdom for people to be invited into. The last, the least, and the lost, the most unlikely of ragtag bunch of people are all invited to the table with Jesus. And I want to be someone who looks back at the end of my life, says I didn't waste it, I used it to share the gospel of the kingdom with people who needed it most. We want to be a church that's passionate about evangelism. So here's the question, just imagine. Imagine not if I walked away from this and owned my repentance, walked out in obedience and faith and started telling others about Jesus. Imagine if each of us did that. Where would we be in three years, in five years, in ten years? Who would we be? And who else would we be? We want to be a church that's passionate about evangelism. Second, I'm way over, and I make no apologies. Second, we're going to be a church that invests heavily into Alpha. And to sort of answer this little piece, I want to throw to the screens one more point after that, and then we'll peace out and jump into worship together. So let me throw to the screens. We remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that He has come to seek and save the lost. And we want to join Him in that mission. And for us at New Life, we prioritize gathering the lost through the great ministry of Alpha. Alpha provides an environment where people feel comfortable to come to a place, whether it's in person or online, to ask the big questions of life. You know, there's this story that Jesus shares in the Gospels that I really love. It's the story of a good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one lost sheep. And the story reveals the heart of God for those that don't know him. He wants to run after them with a pursuing love. And as we commit to gathering the lost as a church, we want to provide for you an accessible way by which you can participate in God's good mission. And it's this, inviting people to Alpha. We don't want to be a church that simply sees people from other churches come and visit. We don't want to be a movement that shuffles people from church to church. We want to be a church that is going after people who don't yet know Jesus. We literally want to be a church that sees more people more like Jesus. I guess before Jesus, I thought I had it all together. I was very much in touch with and aware of like the spiritual realm. I just didn't realize that in actuality, I was lost and there was something missing that I was chasing. I decided to start researching into it and kind of just all unfolded. So what Christine had researched was that the foundation of New Age spiritualism was actually rooted in Satanism, um, which was a big, big shock to us. 
we kept researching after that and that actually led my sister to Jesus Christ. I just slowly came to the conclusion that if Satan is real, then God and Jesus are real. And then we decided to pray to God for the truth and it just, it all unveiled. And that weekend, um, we just knew 100% with full conviction that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that there was a God. I'm crying. <laughs> um, yeah, we, it was the most amazing <laughs> experience I've ever had. I think I spent the first, we both did the first week just crying with gratitude and humbleness that he had pulled us out of darkness that we thought that was light, that he had chosen to save us with just the mere question of what the truth was. So my sister Cass joined Alpha. I loved it from, from the very first week. I actually looked forward to it every um, week, going and meeting the community of people, hearing everyone's testimonies and stories and um, the videos which always just spoke to me and what was going on in my life or what I needed to hear. It really helped me kind of in, I was in such a, the beginning stages of my faith and just to have that community of, um, in such a non-judgmental space to really share and um, speak about my own story. It was, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. So what is Alpha? Alpha is an eight week journey of exploring the answers to life's biggest questions in a non-judgmental and fun environment. And our Alpha leadership team have prayerfully and boldly come up with the vision of seeing 10,000 people come through Alpha by 2026. And at least 25% of those people coming to know Jesus. This is a dream that will require the involvement of our entire church. And it begins with prayer and a personal commitment to invitation. This is your chance to partner with the Holy Spirit and play a part in the mission of seeing more people more like Jesus. We are so excited to see what God does through Alpha across New Life churches this year. Hmm. We want to be a church that's committed and heavily invested into Alpha. We love the stories that we've experienced as a church by virtue of this, but we want more. Not because we want numbers, we want names with stories to all experience the welcome and embrace of King Jesus. And so we need to commit to this. Pray, invite, and if you feel so led, give. It takes about $150 per person to go through Alpha because we give them a meal, we give them a safe space. And so if you would consider partnering with God in this way, do it. We would love to see what God does through Alpha. Last point from me. I want to be a church where the lost feel at home. A preacher I used to listen to would just say it like this. He, he said, we're all just beggars trying to show other beggars where to find bread. And I started this sermon by sort of critiquing the kind of triumphalism that we might have as a people when, it think, when we think about the vision God's given us. And I want to critique the same kind of triumphalism we can feel as Christians who, who carried the truth around. The point of holding on to the truth that God's given us is not to beat people over the head with it. 
is to believe it so deeply that people that are different, unlike us, maybe they find themselves hitting rock bottom, that they'd feel comfortable here. That's going to take a lot. Because I love my comfortable Western, you know, inner city, green slopes lifestyle where I can walk down the road, get a flat white, it's going to be decent. It's usually on non-homogenized milk, so it's a bit sweeter. I like my lifestyle. But it's hard for me to relate to someone who's got a drug addiction. Let me just call that. It's hard for me to relate to someone who's just felt kicked down and beaten by the red tape of the bureaucracy and find themselves unable to access the services they need to become the person they find themselves wanting to become. How does this space become a home for them? And I can't answer that. We can. I want this space to be one where the lost feel home because as the preacher said, we're all just lost people trying to show other people where to be found. Can I invite you to stand? None of us would be here if there wasn't someone in who our world was passionate about evangelism and understood the heart of God for people who are lost. Why? Because each of us have had someone in our lives that loved us enough as lost people to welcome us into the kingdom of God, to experience the banquet of joy that Jesus invites us into. And so I just want to invite you to close your eyes. In the same way that each of us, by virtue of having a friend who loved us enough to tell us about this Jesus guy, I want to invite you right now to think of yourself as that person for maybe someone in your world who comes to mind right now. Maybe it's a family member, a colleague, a friend. What's God putting on your heart? And if there's no one, just ask him to lead you. All of us have someone, a one or a two, someone that we can use our lives and wring them out for the good of them, the glory of God, and the sake of the world. Let's invite you just to give that person to God in your own heart. Pray that they might come to know Jesus. But for some of us here, we don't yet know God. And this might be the first time that you've heard about a a God who doesn't leave himself separate from you, but runs out to you. Maybe you've walked away from faith. Maybe you've never even heard of the framework of faith that we're talking about. All it is is this person, Jesus. And I want to invite you to respond right now. And the way that we respond is we just start conversing with the God who made us. It's not a magical prayer. It's not a mythical prayer. It's the start of a conversation we want to echo in and throughout the rest of your life. And so if you find yourself wanting to meet God, maybe for the very first time, can I just invite you, pray this prayer with me. And if that's you, just hold your hands out in front of you, maybe just as a sign of surrender. All of us can do this if we like. It's just a simple prayer. God, thank you, sorry, and please. Would you pray along with me if that's you? God, thank you for your love that in Jesus you ran out to find me. Sorry for living my life separate from you, running away from you. But God, please, come into my life. I surrender my heart and I give you my all. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, friends, just remain standing. We're going to jump into worship. But can I just affirm you, if you prayed that prayer along with me, here's what the story that we just read said. 
there's celebration. There's celebration in heaven. And if we could, I'd love us just to put our hands together for those that might have prayed. There's celebration right here. We're going to have a team of people down to my right, your left. And if you want to come forward, receive prayer. Uh, If that's you, come identify yourselves to us. But if you want to come forward and receive prayer, we'd love to just...